Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ideology. McMurray here holding down the fort for one more week as Drew returns from his travels in Australia. And if you tuned in last week, you know we're starting the year with just a couple of biblical reflections. In this podcast, we try to find that intersection between the ideas and culture that are shaping us and then being biblically formed uh, as followers of Jesus. I was thinking about Paul's writings in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 19. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's a sentence fragment, but that verse talking about his anguish that Jesus would be formed in the believers in Galatia. And we've done a couple of episodes on spiritual formation and this call for the believer to be brought to maturity in Christ. But want to take a minute here today and talk about the concept of discipleship. If you're part of the Antioch Network of Churches, which Drew and I are uh, based here in Waco, you know that discipleship is a key tenet of our practice. And just for any believer, the great commandment, of course, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself, and then the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And want to unpack today a little bit of what discipleship is. I find that that word can get thrown around in some different ways, semantically, in our modern vernacular. And so what are we talking about when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus or to disciple? It's used interchangeably in different circles as both a noun and a verb. So what are we talking about when we talk about being a disciple, making disciples? This concept is not just academic for me. I have been the director of our discipleship school here at Antioch in Waco for many years, uh, and our sole purpose was to help people develop as disciples of Jesus, and so have thought and reflected deeply on this question. And I remember some years ago now watching the Gospel of John. It was a uh, verse-by-verse, word-by-word depiction of the Gospel of John in a movie format, and notwithstanding who they chose to portray Jesus, and this is not a knock on that actor, but I didn't appreciate how stoic Jesus was portrayed in the Gospel of John. But still, it was a powerful rendition. Anytime you take the scriptures and uh, and portray them, certainly verse by verse, uh, it's going to have some kind of effect. I remember watching the Gospel of John, and I, I hadn't realized until seeing it just how much of the dialogue in the Gospel of John in particular is between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, the disciples are almost always depicted as being present, but Jesus exchanges a lot of of dialogue with the Pharisees in John's gospel. And it struck me as I was watching this portrayal how the Pharisees followed Jesus, physically following him around, how they talked with Jesus, they spent time with Jesus. And in our circles, a lot of times we talk about following Jesus, spending time with God, prayer, these being some of the key marks of a disciple, and then reflecting on the fact that the Pharisees spent time with Jesus. The Pharisees talked with Jesus, what we might talk about as prayer today. They, in some senses, physically followed Jesus in the sense that they followed him around. And I began to think more deeply about what distinguishes the disciples from the Pharisees. And of course, there are a lot of ways that we could parse this out. Clearly, the disciples followership of Jesus was markedly different from the way that the Pharisees 
followed him in terms of their motives. But what it came down to for me, and there are a lot of other things that we could say about this, but the two things that seemed to mark the disciples over and against the Pharisees were their love for Jesus and one another and their obedience to Jesus. And so I came to define discipleship as loving obedience to Jesus Christ. We have a moniker in America that if somebody is a follower of Jesus, we could call them a believer. And while I think that could be an accurate way to describe a follower of Jesus, I think we are running the risk of creating a dualism that James talks about in James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. A little tongue-in-cheek from James, the half-brother of Jesus there. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that much, and they shudder. And he's making the case, of course, that our simple mental cognition, giving mental assent to the deity of Jesus, is not sufficient. Even the demons believe in who Jesus is. And James, of course, is famous for pointing out the fact that our works need to be commensurate with our faith, that our faith is embodied, our faith is lived. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy talks about the modern heresy of the fact that you can be a believer and not a disciple. The churches often make the invitation to simply give mental assent to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then make it optional for one to become a disciple of Jesus after the fact. And he says that that has not been the case throughout history. That certainly was not the case in the New Testament era, in the early church era. That from the teachings of Jesus onward, there was an expectation that true saving faith led to a life that sought to become commensurate with the way and life and teachings of Jesus. And of course, that empowered by the inner working of the Holy Spirit and then us cooperating with the conviction and inner working of the Holy Spirit in that process known as sanctification. Paul captures the mysterious nature of this partnership in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Note, not work for, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it? Well, yes, the answer is yes, it is both. It is us working out for it is God who works in us and we partner with him in that process. I was reading an article by Barna recently titled, Only 10% of Christian 20-somethings have resilient faith. And their findings are that among those who confess Christ, who call themselves Christian, I I should say, uh, in America, who are between 18 and 29 years old, only 10% are what Barna would call resilient disciples, who, number one, attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending worship services. Number two, trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. Number three, are committed to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And four, express desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. I think we would say from the gospel accounts that this is a low bar for being regarded as a resilient disciple. Nevertheless, I think it points out the the fact that, again, this modern heresy that you can be a Christian, labeled as a Christian culturally, and not affirm the authority of Scripture, for instance, or being connected to a body of believers, or be committed to Jesus personally and affirm that he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death, and so on. 
I'm not qualified to explain historically why this is the case in America and in the West more broadly, but I can surmise that the general acceptance of Christianity over the last several hundred years has played a part in the gradations that we have of Christianity from very committed, resilient disciples of Jesus to Christian in name only. I remember being in a North African nation back in the early 2000s on an exploratory trip. We were there with a missionary family who was seeking to move to this nation and a nation of many millions of people. And at that time, statistically, the CIA.gov fact sheet had the nation listed at over 99% Muslim, only 100 known believers at that time. And while we were there, uh, the several weeks that we were there, we were privileged to participate in a baptism. And in North Africa, at least among these believers, baptism was a hugely significant, not just sacrament, but uh, event that really marked their ongoing commitment to Christ. Again, not just their mental ascent, but their willingness to identify with Jesus in every way, to seek to follow in his way, to walk in his footsteps. Uh, Because at the moment of baptism is when a person's, uh, in this country, a person's family would disown them. Uh, Many of the women would be beaten by male relatives. They would often lose any sense of social mobility and uh, that they you know, could get a job. Uh, women would likely now lose the ability to marry. And even in you know, extreme cases, uh, martyrdom was, was certainly a possibility for these uh, brothers and sisters. And so we met in the woods near the Mediterranean uh, for a private worship ceremony. This new brother and new sister shared their testimony. It was being translated to us by a friend of ours off to the side. The local kind of underground church pastor shared a few words. And then we marched publicly out of the woods and then across the beach and uh, then engaged in a public baptism. And I remember standing there and feeling the gravity of what I was witnessing and the joy on the faces of those who were being baptized. And I wondered, watching this unfold, if the cost was this great in America, how many Christians would there actually be who were willing to identify with Jesus in this same way that it could potentially cost us our lives, that we would be rejected by families and have great difficulty in finding gainful employment and risk physical well-being and so on. The reflection turned inward. I wondered if I was even a believer, and it caused me to count the cost all over again. And what stuck out to me in, through this experience was that it seemed very black and white in this North African nation. You were either a, a believer, and by believer, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a student of his who was seeking to love and obey him, or you weren't. It was simply too costly to be anywhere in the middle. And it caused me to reflect on the fact that, again, in America, it just hasn't historically been that costly. Now, I know in certain pockets and certain families and neighborhoods, certainly it can be costly in certain vocations and academia and so on. However, on the general whole, to associate with Jesus Christ, to associate with the church, to be called a Christian, can actually and has historically been socially advantageous. And so the incentive, the motivation behind being labeled a believer, a Christian, may have been something other than simple loving obedience to Jesus Christ.
As Dallas Willard and many others have pointed out, this is an ancient concept. Again, it's more of a modern phenomenon that we separate these two out. Now, yes, you have people throughout the ages who would simply give mental assent to Christ, and then discipleship would become optional uh, later on. But for the most part, the church has understood that to follow Jesus was more than just academic, cognitive, intellectual assent, but required our very lives. I found a quote written by Richard Foster in 1987 as he sought to commemorate the 1600th anniversary of Augustine's conversion, and I want to read it at length. It's several paragraphs, so bear with me, but I think it captures well this sentiment of what does it mean to be a disciple as Augustine wrestled through this in the late 4th century. He says, now there is much we can learn from Augustine's understanding that conversion meant moral transformation. First, we cannot allow the valid and important emphasis on salvation by faith alone to obscure the fact that love and good works are our rightful inheritance as followers of Christ. Any gospel that fails to lead us into that experience by which our lives are increasingly taken over by the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is a half gospel. Any gospel that so focuses upon a future heaven that it leaves people firmly rooted in harshness, bitterness, and despair is a half gospel. Also, in pursuing moral rectitude, Augustine believed that he was pursuing the good life, the blessed life, the happy life. He speaks often of this in the Confessions and defines the happy life as, quote, joy in truth, end quote. He saw that the good life was the virtuous life, or in biblical language, the holy life, and he came to realize that Christ alone could give him this blessed life. Today, the church announces that the good life is found in Christ, but we have so completely reinterpreted the meaning of that classical phrase that for many people, the good life means little more than personal peace and prosperity. As a result, we have readjusted the gospel message so that it offers health and wealth rather than power over greed and pride, for instance. For Augustine, the good life meant a life permeated throughout by love, the power to do the right and to withstand the forces of evil, the faith to see everything in the light of God's governance for good, and the strength to bear hardship, suffering, and death. For many of us in the church today, the good life means protection from all adversity, the power to be number one, the faith to realize our wildest dreams, and the peace to overcome all our neuroses. Augustine points us to a more excellent way. As a result, Augustine did not believe, as is so common today, that one could be a convert to Christ without becoming a disciple of Christ. And there we have our main theme of this episode. We read that sentence again. As a result, Augustine did not believe, as is so common today, that one could become a convert to Christ without being a disciple of Christ. For him, conversion and discipleship were two sides to the same door. Both were necessary for one to pass through the doorway. He knew that receiving Christ required a radical reordering of his life. For Augustine, conversion was not assenting easily to a few propositions. It was restructuring his whole life. The overwhelming belief of the church in the Western world today that it is possible to become and even remain a Christian without any sign of progress in discipleship did not even occur to him. He only stood the grace of Christ to be costly grace, and he was unaware of any other kind of grace. 
Foster goes on to say, this speaks volumes to us today. When we bring people to the point of decision without bringing them into discipleship, we do them a great disservice. A disciple is someone who comes under the teaching and example of another, and conversion without discipleship provides no rationale or motive for moving forward in a life of Christ-likeness. In what we have come to call the Great Commission, Jesus told us to, number one, make disciples, and number two, teach them to observe all that he commanded us, Matthew 28, 19-20. For the most part today, our converts are not disciples, and as a result, we are unable to teach them to live like Christ. From Augustine, we must learn once again that a disciple-less conversion is no conversion at all. Augustine knew that conversion meant a lifelong discipleship, through which he was to move from faith to virtue to knowledge to self-control to steadfastness to godliness to brotherly affection to love, 2 Peter 1, 5-7. He wrote movingly, quote, Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. You called me and cried to me and broke upon my deafness. You sent forth your beams and shone upon me and chased away my blindness. You breathed your fragrance upon me, and I drew in my breath, and now I pant for you. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I burn for your peace. End quote. Richard Foster, of course, wrote The Celebration of Discipline. Dallas Willard followed that up with The Spirit of the Disciplines, capturing this sentiment, again, which is an ancient sentiment, that to simply believe on Christ without any sort of life transformation, empowered again by the Spirit, but in pursuit of the way of Jesus, is not a conversion at all. And I love that quote out of Confessions there at the end by Augustine. You hear this language that sounds like the psalmist talking about panting after the Lord, thirsting, burning for. This is not lifeless mental acquiescence. This is love that is motivated, compelled by the love of Christ in the cross of Christ. I've often reflected on the difference between David and Solomon, father and son. David, for all of his moral failures and shortcomings, ending well, ending in a place of profound love and affection for God. Solomon, for all of his wealth and prosperity, ending poorly. And I think of the one thing prayers that they both prayed. At different points in scripture, both are recorded to pray a one thing prayer. Solomon's is in 1 Kings 3, 5, and 9, where at Gibeon, The Lord appears to Solomon in a dream and asks what he shall give to Solomon. And Solomon, of course, asks for wisdom to govern this great people of God's. And God honors that request and gives him wisdom. But we see David's one thing prayer in Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Solomon asked for wisdom, and that was a noble request, but David asked for the presence of God himself to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And I think there's a hint here as to why their discipleship differed in the end, why one finished well and the other finished poorly. So one of the main things that I want to distinguish in this episode today as that disciple is predominantly a noun in scripture. And again, in our church network, we use the word disciple as a verb, and it is used as a verb in the scriptures. The Greek word used for disciple in the New Testament, mathetes, 
but also the Greek word mathetuo, which means to disciple, to make disciples. One word, we have to translate into two words, though we can use the word disciple. You won't find it in Webster's as a verb, but it's not incorrect biblically to use the word disciple as a verb. But here's the difference. The word mathetes is used 269 times in the Greek New Testament, whereas mathetuo is used just four times in the Greek. So 269 times as a noun, just four times as a verb. I think the message in that is clear that in order to make disciples, to instruct others, to help others, to mentor others in their spiritual development in Christ, one has to first be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. It is right to expend energy to get into somebody else's life, to serve them, to help them grow in their affections and obedience to Jesus Christ. But that admonition is predicated upon the great commandment, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love necessitates obedience biblically. As Jesus is about to go to the cross during the Last Supper in John chapter 14, he's comforting his disciples, and he makes a series of promises starting in verse 12 of that chapter and on through verses 20 or 21 or so. And around about verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, I used to see that in and of itself as a command, or to put it even more negatively, in my early years as a Christian, when I would read the Bible, I read that, I actually almost heard manipulation in that. Sometimes I hear my own kids saying, hey, if you really love me, you do this for me. But if you read it in context, Jesus is making a bunch of promises in this portion of text, the few verses preceding verse 15 and the several after. And if you read it as a promise, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's a promise. I could just see him leaning in and talking to the disciples, maybe looking Peter in the eye. Hey, Peter, you can stop trying so hard in your own strength. Love me. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And you see that refrain repeated multiple times in the Gospels. It becomes a beautiful cycle, actually. In 1 John 4.19, we're told that we love because he first loved us. God initiates his love towards us, which Paul breaks down in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are compelled by his love towards us. But then, yes, Matthew 22, the great commandment, we love him with everything that we are because we were first loved. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey me. And then the one who obeys Jesus, I believe Jesus speaks to this tangentially in Matthew 5, verse 8, when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I believe that when we are walking in loving obedience to Jesus, that we see him with greater clarity. And what do we see when we see him? We see his great love towards us, which compels us to love him. And when we love him, we obey him. When we obey him, I believe we see him with greater clarity. And it's an upward spiral for the rest of eternity. The alternative to that is the performance cycle, which says I'm insecure in God's love, and so I need to act to prove my love for God. But it's eventually insufficient because we all fall short. We all struggle, and we are all in the process of sanctification And so we double down our efforts, but inevitably we fail again, and we live in this constant performance and shame cycle. But the disciple is lifted out of that cycle into loving obedience to Jesus Christ. 
So we're doing these two episodes to start 2023 talking about posturing ourselves like Elijah was invited to by God in the cave, posturing ourselves to discern the still small voice of God, to not get out ahead of God, but to rather follow him as his learners, his disciples. As David wrote in Psalm 16:8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And then the reflection today on what it means to be a disciple, that our lives are aligning with the life of Jesus, that we are not just giving mental assent to his deity, but then we are seeking to conform to his way, that it's not simply enough to be a believer in the mental sense, but a disciple in the whole lived sense of that word. And then, yes, to turn around and help others do the same, but our discipleship of others, our ability to, quote, disciple others is made effectual, is built upon the fact that we are ourselves disciples of Jesus. So may Jesus, if you are marked by his name, a follower of Christ, may he be front and center in your vision this year amid all the complexities, amid all the difficulties and all the other voices and messages that are coming at us day in and day out. May the life, the person, the teachings, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the promised return of Jesus Christ, may his life and message be paramount front and center in our minds and our hearts as we seek to more and more be conformed into his image for his glory. May that be our great ambition this year. Thank you as always for tuning in. We'll catch you next week on Ideology.